everybody, and thanks for checking out the Storage Review Podcast. I'm Brian Beeler. Last week, we had the opportunity to go to an actual trade show. Yeah, a real-life trade show in St. Louis. It was Supercompute 21. A great experience. Of course, the attendance was a little bit lighter, a couple thousand people versus 12, 13,000. The uh, exhibits were a little more Spartan than usual, but there was a certain energy there that was really cool. The guys and gals that were there wanted to be there. They were excited to be there. And so even though the audience was smaller, it was really energetic. It was uh, excited. It was enthusiastic. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, adjectives to describe the same thing. But the, the point being is that there were a lot of people that wanted to be there to see what was going on in the HPC supercompute world and a little bit of enterprisey stuff too. Uh, all sorts of cool exhibits there. Now, one of the places we spent a lot of time was at the Supermicro booth and a couple reasons for that. One, it was one of the biggest booths on the floor, maybe the biggest, uh, with a lot of people, a lot of new stuff that they were showing off, uh, a lot of uh, blade chassis and things that, we, that we've seen and reviewed recently. So it was great to be able to connect with that team. Uh, but it was just uh, another opportunity to get that human contact that just doesn't work so well over Zoom. I mean, if anything, we're seeing the decline of attendance on these uh, online events the second year around. So it was great to see SC go off in person and uh, get to spend a lot of time with uh, with the Supermicro team there, as, as I indicated. Uh, one of those great conversations I had was with uh, Vic Maliala, who was able to walk us through the new equipment, walk us through some of the other stuff that was released in the last few months, and uh, really get a whole demo of, of all of the cool stuff that was going on there. So let me bring in my friend Vic. Vic, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Well, you made it back to the office, I can see, with a giant badge over your head. Yeah, we are so fortunate that, uh, you know, thanks to all the vaccination that's available to us, we could, uh, you know, travel freely, uh, at least in the U.S., and be mm. safe. Yeah, well, you took the traditional route with an airplane. I drove over from Cincinnati, which was a uh, an adventure. I'm not a I'm not a long road trip guy, so that that car time was unusual for me. Uh, at least the traffic should be better. I mean, with all the <laughs> reduction in uh, you know people on the road, but well, definitely know- <laughs> it's a long ride. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, the traffic is better, but for whatever reason, the the two-lane roads between here and anywhere in America, one lane is always closed and under construction, so I don't think it makes much difference. But, uh, you know, in the run-up there, I said how excited I think the vibe was there and the people were. I mean, you you guys had a jam and booth the whole time, from what I could tell. I mean, you, you had some people there, and I, I think you said... As soon as people found out you were going in person, you had some more signups. People were eager to get out of the office. Like, what what was your take on uh, on the uh, the vibe or the feeling of of the uh, show floor there? Yeah, you know, truth to be told, in the very beginning, we were a bit uh, skeptical whether the event would even happen in person because there are so yeah, many too. events that we scheduled for, planned, and got canceled. But uh, supercomputing is one of those events uh, that everyone gets quite excited about, mainly because you know, look at the kind of uh, things that we are facing, whether it's uh, related to COVID research, whether it's related to, you know, you know any kind of uh, acceleration of innovation uh, and supercomputing in the smack center of it. So uh, initially people were not sure whether they want to go or not, 
this was like I'm talking about three, four months ago when they were planning for the event. But as uh, things started getting better and as uh, we started reaching out to customers that we are going to be uh, present both in person as well as online, we actually started seeing customers putting requests to come and you know see us uh, you know at the event. So uh, it kind of built into uh, the momentum, and uh, it did not let us down. I mean, as you can uh, you know imagine, the number of people in the show is less, but the quality of staff yeah. I mean, people who need to be there, who wanted to be there, who ended up getting permission travel there, they were there, right? And uh, it was exciting to meet those people i mean nearly after two years uh, of not seeing the customers and for them being able to actually face somebody in person and actually see the products in person and touch and feel i think it was uh, uh, it, it, it was good for uh, both sides i would say yeah i i totally agree and it's funny because we came at it from two different angles i mean you were exhibiting and of course i'm sure you got a chance to to detach and walk around a little bit but you know, I spent most of my time floating around the booths and, and seeing things. And, you know, I, I think another opportunity that came up for me was the ability to interact with a lot of companies that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. Not that I don't want to, but just like if the show floor is open for seven hours or whatever the number is, there's only so much time you have to, to physically go around and see the demos and have those conversations. So I think it was a, a net positive for a lot of the smaller companies that, that maybe wouldn't have had as many conversations otherwise. So, you know, there, there was some, some silver lining on, on the cloud, I would say. Absolutely. I think uh, as long as um, we plan our meetings uh, well and, and we go and uh, spend some time with these customers, I mean, you know, to your point, even I had a little bit of, uh, you know, break in between to go and see, you know, what the other, uh, you know, ecosystem partners are doing. I mean, we have our products that are, also either uh, used as they are or rebranded and put in their booths of several partners. But at the mm -hmm. same time, uh, when you talk about the ecosystem, uh, it's not just uh, you know, uh, you know, the server and storage hardware, but what people are doing with respect to cooling, with respect to interconnect, with respect to uh, next generation technologies that we should be watching out and how we make it uh, easy to deploy, easy to manage. Uh, these are the things we read a lot about in articles, but um, and having an opportunity to go uh, talk to those people and see where they are headed and how what they are thinking, uh, that I think is invaluable. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And that's one of the reasons why I like the show so much is not so much for the, the supercomputers, which is sort of ironic because that's the, the core of the show. But I think like with OCP is another one, uh, supercompute is, an, is another good example of places where leading edge technology is occurring and whether it's in AI ML or if it's in, in um, uh, open compute standards, if it's whatever it is, the leading hyperscalers and, and, and thought leaders in, in intelligence are doing these types of things with these high-end pieces of equipment. But that technology will come to the enterprise in a, in a more consumable way. And, and we can talk through some of that, but all the work that's happening with GPUs, with Interconnect, as you said, with storage even, there were a couple storage guys there showing off stuff like uh, Samsung had a CXL demo that was pretty sweet. Uh, you talked about uh, some of your partners, Weka was there you know, showing off uh, 
know, some of their integration uh, with, with your servers as well. I mean, there, there's so much going on there that, that I think is going to be relevant to the mainstream enterprise and even SMBs in the next year or two, that this is sort of that window to, to peek through and see what's coming, what's already being done, and then what's going to get more productized and consumable you know, down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think you mentioned one thing that's uh, extremely important here is that supercomputing, as it uh, typically goes in national labs and research centers, that is given, right? But mm-hmm. the amount of supercomputing that's uh, being adopted in enterprises is enterprise customers is a lot more than ever before, and uh, the trend definitely seems to be pointing in the direction where uh, the adoption is going to be a lot more going forward, also. So uh, effectively, what it means is that uh, we need to make these products easily, easy to, easily to be deployed and managed because they do not necessarily have the same uh, type of uh, technologists and uh, engineering resources as uh, typical research institutes do. Mm-hmm. So um, the adoption is increasing and the need for easier deployment of these products also is increasing. Well, let's talk about some of the stuff that you were showing. I mean, that's um, where we, you and I spent some time together. I know you have the universal GPU. I know you've got liquid cooling. I'm going to tell you my favorite thing that, that I saw at your booth. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. The, th- the three and a half inch hard drive caddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, was, I was actually... Um, challenging the team when they were um, having uh, all the demo list finalists because you know that we have really a lot of products. I mean, you're talking about uh, uh, a wide gamut of products and obviously we cannot show everything at the event because of, you know, as as big as the booth was, um, sure? we just can't put all, right? So we ended up picking and choosing few of these platforms and um, the team came up with like, you know, hey, you know, can we actually showcase this product? And I was like, eh, you know, why? I mean, it's a supercomputing event and uh, all that. But in the end, um, we were so glad we took it because the amount of interest that we had from the customers was insane. I mean, you know, I, I was actually, to your point, I was expecting like, you know, people are jumping all over these different uh, GPU and accelerated platforms, which they did. But sure. there was significant interest on this uh, high capacity top loading storage. And um, I, and and then as I start, I mean, honestly speaking, as we started looking into why we need to showcase, um, we looked at what are the differences in the platform from the previous generation, and that actually was, uh, you know, uh, reason enough for us to bring it and at least show to the people that uh, that are looking for a high capacity storage with uh, various uh, kickers, right? I mean, you're talking about high performance, high availability, and uh, ability to uh, kind of uh, in a scale easily and all that stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I mean the, I, I can't tell you how many screws Kevin has lost under the racks in our lab over the years, but if we were to magically be able to pick up the racks and move them, there must be 9,000 drive caddy screws under there. So <laughs> when you or one of your guys popped out that 20 terabyte drive and was like, hey, check out the new drive caddy that basically unfolds, it wraps more or less around the three and a half inch hard drive and then just chunks it into that top load system in you know two and a half seconds. 
I know it's it's such a nerdy thing, but when you interact with hardware a lot, those little time-saving things in, in life simplification things go a long way. So uh, I hope you put that caddy in everything. It's fantastic. <laughs> so um, the feedback was that uh, as people are deploying uh, these at scale, um, the serviceability is a big, big, big pain, right? Um, you know, when something needs to be serviced, the downtime or the time it takes to, I mean, time is money, right? So uh, that feedback we have taken uh, quite seriously. And we looked at a few different things. If you take a look at that caddy, one thing that we have done is, uh, I mean, you know, literally without any screws, you can pop it up and put it back on uh, within no time, like a couple of seconds. Uh, but uh, we have also made it, um, in a way where uh, if people wanted to use a three and a half inch drive or if they want to use two and a half inch drive, depending on what they want to do, we incorporate that into the uh, drive cage. So um, depending on what people are looking at, they can have a mix and match of those, uh, easy to be popped in and out. And uh, if you have seen, if you remember, the way we have uh, even developed this platform is um, um, one do not have to reach to the back side of the chassis ever. Right. Uh, all the servicing or serviceability aspect of it is done from the front and all the cabling is uh, built into the uh, enclosure. So uh, you don't have to have a separate uh, cable management arm in the back of the system, uh, which typically ends up, uh, you know, complicated. Uh, and then uh, we were able to the one that we actually showcased was a 60 bay. So where we could pull like 30 bay first and then we have uh, additional latch we need to release to bring the next 60. So I think right. uh, the improvements done through in and throughout uh, to make it, uh, number one, easy to uh, kind of uh, service it and the amount of time it takes to manage any piece of it is minimized as well. Yeah, the uh, the sliding latch, too, is a good point that when you're dealing with these large, heavy systems, that even just manipulating the, the tray, the drawers can be a challenge. Uh, so it's sort of... It, when you're sliding it back in, it locks in increments so that if you're just servicing, you know, a drive in that front row, for instance, it, it's easy and you don't have to, you know, have the whole thing out or don't have to, to worry about it uh, quite so much and easier one person operation too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, so it's speaking of OCP, Seagate was showing off uh, NVMe hard drives uh, two weeks ago at that event and SC seems like a good target and a device like your high capacity uh, systems where you might still want to have some NVMe flash in there to accelerate the, those big bulky uh, data stores. I, you know, I, I've never, I didn't even ask you last week, but what do you, do you follow that much? What do you think about NVMe hard drives? I, I know, actually, I love it. Uh, the, the ultimate use case need to be figured out, right? If you take a look at um, uh, in, in a typical storage scenario, uh, you have uh, uh, high performance flash and then high capacity storage and you do tiering and all that, right? Um, and within a given drive, there's always a bit of cache. I mean, you're talking about 16, 32, whatever makes of cache that's there. But um, as as you add some NVMe flash, uh, you know, to this hard disk drive, you are able to kind of stretch the performance limits of the traditional spindle because you're talking mm -hmm. about uh, within a drive, you're able to cache some of it and you're able to write in the back end to the spindle. So 
um, you know, you you can actually take the performance of the storage system to the next level. So, uh, what does it mean? Um, you know, as you as you deploy it in um, high capacity storage systems today, uh, the systems are designed based on the amount of throughput that we can get from a given drive, and we kind of multiply by the number of uh, you know drives that we are putting in enclosure, and based on that we add certain number of expanders or certain number of uh, you know storage controllers to optimize uh, for both capacity and cost and performance uh, for all three of them but now the equation changes a little bit as you bring this additional performance in a given drive um, you know then we need to look at uh, how the platforms uh, should be designed to take advantage of it i mean as such just by dropping the drives in a traditional system would just do fine but you're not necessarily capitalizing on the performance benefits of it. Um, so it does give us an idea to uh, or a challenge to resolve it. I mean, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, let's say, number of uh, drives that we can support in a given system, uh, you know, how we do the performance optimization, especially with PCI Gen 5 going to be uh, in, 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 uh, in the uh, platforms in a very short period of time. Uh, of course, the storage controllers and other things need to evolve with it. Uh, but overall ecosystem, uh, definitely we are moving towards uh, being able to provide a lot more bandwidth uh, you know, from a given system. Uh, so if you are able to bring that performance per drive up, uh, we can create uh, more innovative platforms to bring the best from uh, what Seagate can offer at this time. Yeah, and hopefully... Um... You know, one of the other goals is to give you a more simple server design too, so that you're not having to engineer for SATA, SAS, and NVMe in the same system. If you can just go flat NVMe, then uh, you know, from an engineering standpoint, that maybe simplifies it a little bit. Right. So today, today, um, still a, I mean, there's a significant portion of uh, customer base has shifted to NVMe, but there's a. Uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, applications that are typically SATA SaaS based. What we have done at the platform level for us is to uh, create the backplanes where you can have NVMe or uh, you know, SATA SaaS drives to be connected. Um, at least from the platform point of view, we don't have to design three different platforms. We can have like one platform with a simple backplane where the cabling can be handled in the back end to support uh, these drives. But uh, to your point, um, if if the interface point of it can be standardized, definitely it will uh, help. However, uh, there is still a significant uh, percentage of uh, uh, customers that are using, uh, you know, traditional SAT, uh, traditional RAID functionality, sure. uh, which is uh, a bit tricky when it comes to NVMe drives because of uh, direct connect to the processor. And even if you take tri-mode cards and whatnot, uh, you have to play with uh, those PCI lanes uh, properly to get the yeah, right performance. Absolutely. Yeah, check out the, uh, well, I mean, part of what was going on at that show floor, there were all sorts of computational devices out there, computational storage devices. Um, PlyOps was on the show floor showing mm -hmm. off their uh, their edge card accelerator, which actually uses a, like a little DRAM module on it, and it's got super caps, and that thing's pretty cool uh, when it comes to accelerating uh, well, in, in their case, the demo they were showing was uh, Intel's QLC drive. So that's a pretty neat use case of of an SSD that's essentially a hard drive replacement being accelerated by another piece of technology. Uh, the other one, they weren't there, uh, but is Grade that we've worked with, which is a GPU-based accelerator for NVMe. 
So mm -hmm. you can you can drop this uh, GPU in the grade software, and it can aggregate all of the NVMe drives you know, just on the lanes without having to be physically connected in a way that um, you know, we think of sort of legacy RAID cards, right? Uh, but yeah, there's there's a number of guys out there going after these types of problems of once we go to right. all NVMe, especially flash, how do we aggregate this stuff in a way that that's non overhead uh, oriented or, or limits the overhead and really lets the drives go sing? Because that's been the problem with the NVMe RAID cards for years is that you yeah. just you, you couldn't put it more than a couple drives on without saturating. Yeah, and uh, you know, interesting that you brought in uh, PlyOps as uh, an example, and uh, they, they, you know, they were our neighbor uh, at the show floor. And mm -hmm. if you have seen uh, the product that they were showcasing in their uh, booth, it was actually based on a, uh, you know, Supermicro, uh, you know, Epic-based uh, uh, platform. It's a single socket WIO with ten NVMe drives. And mm -hmm. look at how the industry converges, right? And we are using the Intel. Uh, QLC drives in an AMD Epic-based uh, system uh, with the PlyOps accelerator. Um, mainly, if you think about the advantage that they were trying to bring, at least one of the advantages that I saw obvious was uh, you don't necessarily need to go for uh, you know TLC or even a higher endurance drives in order for you to use it in uh, several enterprise applications because of the way PlyOps is uh, you know uh, intervening in between on how the data to be managed. So they're extending the life of a QLC drive. Uh, and and I think you know, it's exciting because, uh, you know, we are, again, we are bringing technology from different partners. Uh, you know, they are competition at some time, they are partners at some other time, but yeah. ultimately uh, Intel, AMD, Sumicro, PlyOps, and all these things coming together to you know, provide a solution to the customers. So that that's a very good part about that particular demo they are showing there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's those 5316s from Intel. We've got a couple of them that are the uh, 30 terabyte class. They're really, really cool. And, and the, you know, 30 terabytes and a little thing that's not, you know, it's expensive. But relatively speaking, this is not as expensive as Flash has been historically uh, is really neat. But you have to be really careful with QLC if that's your primary data tier. And some of these accelerator cards and computational storage devices are just neat in that they start to give you the ability to take full advantage of the flash and mitigate the performance uh, delta there when it comes to writing to the drives. Read, they're still super quick. You know, that, that's never been QLC's problem. It's just that it wants to be written to in a very gentle way. And so these cards can <laughs> kind of bridge that gap, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, so that uh, that was a long riff on uh, on hard drive caddies. So, <laughs> so that was that was good. Um, two other big themes going on that I that I noticed: liquid cooling was at least a quarter of the show floor. I mean, you guys were showing right. you guys were showing um, blades with liquid cooling. We actually got you to. Uh, one of your guys found a drill in the, the back and took the lid off, which was cool, so we could see that. Um, you know, we, we put those up on social and, and got some good engagement there. Um, but all over, there were connectors, there were pumps, there were you know fluid designers, there were all sorts of things going on. 
So, I mean, obviously you've got a perspective on it since Supermicro is mm -hmm. investing in liquid cooling solutions for your traditional servers. And maybe very soon all servers will have to be liquid cooled or all multi CPU, multi GPU servers, because there's just going to be so much energy there. But what's your take on uh, the state of liquid cooling? Because this is very much a central theme in, in the HPC world. Yeah, so um, we have been investing our time and resource for the last, uh, I would say, uh, you know, five or six years. Uh, in fact, um, I think in 2013, uh, 2014 CBIT, you know, if you, if you still remember wow. that event in uh, Europe, uh, mm -hmm. that was the time we were actually uh, showcasing some of our uh, liquid cooling uh, systems. But, um, you know, ultimately it boils down to uh, the customer requirements, right? I mean, liquid cooling was great. It actually can improve the efficiencies quite a bit, but uh, the cost to take it to deployment and uh, uh, the pain in terms of uh, managing uh, the post-installation, those were the primary concerns for customers to adopt it. And and and, and, and the performance uh, improvements that are coming from both CPU and GPU and well, even the accelerators of different uh, type, uh, that kind of mandates uh, the need for an alternative cooling to forced air cooling. I mean, uh, you have seen the platforms on the floor. We have Many of them that uh, are uh, for you when it comes to these accelerators, mainly because we needed to have these, you know, big heat sinks, uh, so people do not have to change the way they use the systems in their data center, and they can still operate. But as you start looking at uh, bigger clusters, um, you know, there is a lot of uh, need for higher density, and uh, and need to reduce the footprint. Um, so as long as there is enough power, uh, we can pack this, but then the cooling becomes a nightmare. Uh, mm -hmm. So we started uh, you know, looking at more than one alternatives for uh, liquid cooling. Uh, so obviously the direct-to-chip uh, liquid cooling uh, is one of the things that is getting most traction. And mainly because of, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have like in you know, a two chilled water. I mean, you need to have uh, definitely uh, water to the data center in order for us to use it. But um, the best part about this is uh, that's the least intrusive uh, when it comes to uh, managing the system. It fits into the standard rack, and as long as the rest of the stuff is properly plumbed, uh, plumbing is done, then you can actually uh, use it. And we have deployed several HPC clusters, and uh, you know then we kind of got uh, the best practices uh, figured out in terms of how to manage these things. Uh, you know, you don't want anything to leak. You don't want anything to blow up. You know, how do you do all those things, right? But yes. that's just one part of it. And then, when 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 I started talking to uh, uh, customers in Europe and uh, uh, some of the telco customers and some of some of the customers who are using at edge data centers, uh, suddenly um, they seem to be a lot more open uh, to adopting even immersion cooling. You know, hmm. which which was uh, quite kind of surprising, mainly because I think these guys were used to managing, uh, you know, let's say liquid cooling uh, of some sort, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, and it's coming back right now for them to uh, use it in that way. And uh, again, that kind of takes it uh, into a further segue, uh, like, you know, like let's say um, it fragments the market in a way, which liquid you want to use, whether you want to use the standard systems and, you know, just to dunk them in the liquid, or you want to have a bit of more optimization uh, done on that, so which increases the density and reduces the, 
like you know inefficiencies but then there's a cost associated with it because you're further customizing and you're pigeonholing yourself into that part um from supermicro's point of view and coming back to that point is that um we started talking to different customers we started collecting their feedback and uh we have uh you know solutions that are being prepared and also being worked on uh you know for the future deployments uh with uh, direct liquid cooling as well as uh, immersion cooling uh it is going to be adopted a lot more than before but i do feel that uh there is still a big uh let's say a uh, portion of the market that cannot just take liquid cooling uh, because of the way the data centers are designed so that's the reason um you know even if you take a look at something like our universal uh, gpu platform we are uh, designing it in both 4u and 5u uh you know the 5u is basically to give additional uh, cooling capability so people can still use it in a traditional sense so right. while the direction is absolutely clear um there is going to be uh let's say a mix of uh, and there is going to be a uh, a ramp up that is needed uh and i think it it will happen in next uh, year or two uh as people try to uh come into agreement with what need to be done and the systems to be deployed in a more efficient way and and cost again yeah. cost is absolutely going to be a criteria that people will look into it i have a feeling uh, that will come down and there are going to be more innovation on that front that will make it easy to be deployed in a traditional data center yeah i mean that's part of the trick even that we think about here is we only have eight racks but okay so so what it may not matter because in the may, not next year servers but what 23 24 I mean we may get to the point where liquid cooling is fundamental to more servers than it's not okay or at least mm-hmm. high performance servers so it's a question too of of how how are enterprises or small businesses going to adjust there is it um you know we all tap into the liquid supplies that are i mean every office has water i mean you, you have to right but you know how do you how do you make that work right and how do you start to tell that story so i think that's an interesting challenge um once you're there obviously hooking into the back of your your superblade chassis that have all the the uh, cooling elements in there that's easy that's the easy stuff do you think there's um it seems like there may be a bridge though in between where like in the PC space where uh CPU cooling and GPU cooling on internal loops has been a thing for for many many years that cooling CPUs and and add-in cards or or add-in devices GPUs maybe in the the uh universal GPU example could that be done with internal cooling systems that are liquid cooled but not full water or or hydro hookup yeah in in a, in a workstation front as you said it's very common right i mean people actually have uh, you know a dissipation heat dissipation uh you know uh, within the same enclosure we also have uh you know uh, something called like a, a liquid to air or l2a type of uh, solutions where mm-hmm. uh you don't necessarily have anything externally connected but uh you have several cooling loops uh, that are connected to systems within a rack and at the top of the rack mm-hmm. is where we have like this uh, massive heat distribution uh, unit all these things are connected to that way you don't necessarily have um, you know an external uh, cooling or li- liquid coming into the system so 
yes, there are uh, alternatives, and it also depends on the size of um, you know the the cluster as well as uh, the amount of uh, space that they have within a system and how much uh, cooling that need to be provided. Because um, you know, obviously, when you have a lot of heat generated, you need to have a, a, a to cool it. Uh, you know, within that. I mean, to, to your point, uh, we have seen some of these solutions offered by um, you know uh, several uh, companies that are displaying their products at supercomputing, where literally a full rack with a you know big um, you know heat distribution unit, yeah. so that way they can take on anything. So. Mm -hmm. As I said, uh, there are many solutions that are going to hit the market very soon. And um, depending on what problem we are trying to solve, like because you're talking about a density, the heat dissipation, the cost, the ease of management, uh, all these things need to uh, you know, kind of align for you to pick the right platform. So it, it is going to be a hybrid. It's definitely the uh, right direction and it will happen, uh, again, based on you know, these factors. Yeah, I saw I, I saw some while I was there, and I've seen them before, like the uh, radiator rack door, right? And it's got some extra fans yeah. in it, but but a lot of heat dissipation material, and whether it's liquid into the door or or something else to to pass that energy from the servers to the door and let the door be just a giant heat sink is pretty cool. I mean, you think about a little M.2 SSD with a heat sink <laughs> on top. This is the it's the same idea with fans and and metal to to get rid of that heat. Um, but yeah, there may be several interim solutions to help organizations bridge that gap without having to go full liquid cooled because you know, that probably won't happen in the enterprise right away either. Right. I, I did see the rear door uh, heat exchanger uh, solutions that customers asked uh, Supermicro to deploy. We have done that. And uh, to your point, that is the least intrusive, right? I mean, as long as you have a chilled water there and it's actually taking the heat away from that, mm -hmm. um, you know, you do have, uh, you know, like uh, the standard systems that you can just be plugged in and you don't need to worry about, uh, you know, making any changes. But mm -hmm. the next best is the direct to chip liquid cooling like you have seen with our blades, the GPU products, the big twin, um, you know, several platforms from Supermicro, uh, you know, where people, are okay to adopt it with direct-to-chip liquid cooling. And then taking it a step further is, um, you know, we have uh, several partners on the liquid cooling side of it for immersion. You know, that is also something we are uh, providing as an option. Um, most importantly, what I feel is that it's impossible for Supermicro to uh, address all kind of customer requirements in different geos. And that's where our partner network is coming into picture. We have several partners that are taking uh, system integrator partners that are taking our systems and working with you know some uh, liquid liquid cooling or alternate cooling solution providers that are regionally available and vetted for or preferred by an end user and they are bridging the gap so uh, it, it's uh, it's actually uh, a good and bad thing because uh, when everything goes well it's fantastic when things go wrong then actually supermicro's name is also going to be at risk but um I think, I, I, wait, I, I, think I can't believe I can't happen. believe what I I think I heard you say is that Supermicro needs more products. You, <laughs> you guys have eight billion SKUs. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, ultimately it's a customer driven. I mean, we do have building blocks, and that's the direction that we are uh, leading with, even in developing our uh, universal GPU platform. Uh, but ultimately, 
if you are talking about customization for a given application uh, for a given end user, uh, in no matter how many products that you have, there's always something better that we can do. And some we do it directly and some do we do with our partners. All right, well, let's let's talk about the GPU platform for a little bit because I, that was, um, I guess, your big news item from the event. So that was a, 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 an uh, emphatic launch from you guys. It seemed now you wouldn't let me take the lid off the thing, which I'm still a little upset about. But it seems to be that that there's a lot of momentum around getting the GPUs or accelerators. You know, Intel's obviously working on a on a product there that uses this, the same slot ish. Um, getting those on the board versus dropping them in as add-in cards. Talk about that sort of fundamental you know, difference so that we can really understand then what you guys are doing with universal GPU server? That is um, a loaded question. And then I think, you know, <laughs> we can, we can, <laughs> right. we can answer well, it in many ways. Uh, all right. Well, break it down a little bit. How is this, how is the approach different than the traditional add-in card approach? Okay. So uh, first things first. So basically, it started off like, you know, you have a processor and you throw some GPU or accelerator into your platform mm -hmm. in a very simplest terms, right? And then came a need for multiple uh, accelerators to be populated in a given system. Mm -hmm. And uh, then people started talking about the data is not fitting in a single GPU. Uh, so it need to be uh, communicating with the GPUs next to it. So which basically means that there's a latency associated with it. Then we started talking about peer-to-peer -peer, uh, communication. So then we started talking about different topologies that come with it. So, um, you know, everything falling under a single root complex or multiple root complexes. So depending on that, um, you know, one need to make a determination ahead of time as to what the application that they will be running and how it will be used. And one of the things that has been done is uh, initially by NVIDIA in, in terms of uh, SXM or you know, AMD point of view, they have their own uh, you know, link uh, associated with it, uh, like NVLink versus something else. Um, the reason is basically they are bypassing uh, the traffic going through the processor and communicating between the GPUs, which is great. And the latency to further improve, that's when the, the whole uh, SXM modules that came into picture, where uh, you know, you could be connecting these multiple units on a given uh, given board uh, through its proprietary interconnect, which is high high perform, uh, high throughput and low latency interconnect. Uh, that way, if one has to move the traffic between the processor and the GPU, that is not impacted. But if the data traffic were to go sideways, uh, east west, then you are able to handle that as well. Um, if you were to take it across multiple systems, now you need to have some kind of a switching and some kind of a connectivity that goes between them. So that's the kind of a background on that. So when we started looking at, uh, you know, what situation today is, uh, there is, of course, obviously NVIDIA, the industry leader uh, is there, but there are several other GPU and accelerator companies that are there. Like when you're talking about Intel, you talked about AMD, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, Havana. coming, right? Yeah. Many, many, right? And some, some of them are already in the market. Uh, some of them uh, are, are in development. Um, so in parallel, there is another effort on standardizing it because, uh, you know, if everybody has to, uh, you know, develop a brand new architecture for that, it's not going to fly. So that's where the 
OAM or the Open Accelerator module that uh, you know is defined. I think it kind of started with Facebook and few companies that yeah. kind of driven in the in the direction. So we are able to uh, you know uh, standardize the platforms based on that. So then uh, the processor point of view, there are a lot of things. I mean, we are talking about Intel, talking about AMD, and we're talking about maybe even ARM in future. So on the processor side, we have multiple processor architecture. And in terms of the accelerators, we have uh, different accelerators based on the PCIe form factor, based on the SXM form factor, based on the ones that are OAM form factor. So you mentioned that Supermicro has many platforms. Just imagine how many more the platform's going to be if I were to have to make a platform one for each. So, yeah. um, and, and then, you know, we started off this uh, idea, you know, of universal GPU, uh, you know, two, three years ago, and it took, a t it took some time for us to materialize that. We needed to have a platform that uh, hopefully is able to accommodate multiple CPU complexes and multiple GPU or accelerated complexes and be able to connect them in a given system um, in different topologies. Uh, if you are taking the PCIe form factor in a single root complex or multiple root complexes and uh, how you want to have the local storage uh, mapped to a specific accelerator to specific processor core to a given uh, interconnect in the back. So um, we thought about it and want, you know, created a platform that we believe is a universal uh, GPU platform, or at least going to transform into one, mm -hmm. um, you know, to accommodate all these different things. So I think at the high level, uh, I think that is what it is. And the first product in that uh, um, in, in in that architecture that we released uh, was actually based on based on the third generation uh, Epic as a processor, and uh, the GPU point of view. Uh, it is uh, AMD MI200 or MI250 uh, uh, OAM form factor uh, GPUs. So it's basically four OAM modules with eight GPUs uh, in them, you know, connected, uh, you know, as, as I said, using the OAM with its own dedicated storage, dedicated, uh, uh, let's say, network card uh, to bring the best performance out of it. Yes, yeah, so you you talked a little bit about the the reasons why uh, you need that the benefits of proximity of the GPUs of the GPU RAM more than anything else, right? Um, and the efficiency of the way you've laid out storage and networking to kind of go one to one to one, you know, on, on this uh, this sort of modality. What? Um, how would this compare then to a traditional add-in card architecture in terms of, I, you probably have a density advantage this way too, because you still have all your PCIe on the back for network or whatever else you want, right? Various things, right? I think, you know, definitely that's one of the advantages, but even more so, if you take a look at the standard PCIe form factor, double width card, it's about 300 watts. And Mind you, now we are talking about accelerators. People are bringing it to 600, 700, 800 watts per, and it's impossible to support that in a traditional, uh, you know, double width PCIe slot. Um, maybe we can, you know, make it even bigger and have extra power, but uh, it, it just becomes too bulky. Uh, versus uh, having this OAM form factor, or you know, from NVIDIA point of view, it's the uh, you know, their own, uh, you know, mezzanine card form factor, right? Mm -hmm. These are the ones that can accommodate a higher wattage. And 
much of the interconnect between that is in the board as we design the board for that makes it easy for us to uh, you know cool it by liquid cooling or putting a bigger heat sink in a bigger enclosure to do that so um, i think there is, there is the disadvantage of this kind of a platform is that uh, if it is a four uh, GPU system, then you are installing four GPUs. You cannot say like, I'm going to start with one and then build on that. Right. It doesn't work that way. Versus mm -hmm. the PCIe uh, form factor, which is the reason why a lot of people prefer, is um, uh, you know they can go with one and go all the way to 10, for example. And uh, other thing here is uh, if one wants to play with the different accelerators to see how it works, uh, and not all of the uh, slots could be used for accelerators. People use some for networking, some for, uh, you know, like a video processing, some for, uh, you know, data processing, different type of cards, different type of connectors. So all these things uh, can be easily supported in the PCIe form factor, uh, you know, boards. So both of them uh, will coexist. And depending on, again, what problem the customer is trying to solve, one would pick that. Yeah, so once you understand your workload and you really know what you want and you want to standardize on, on on some blocks, building blocks for that, then maybe the universal GPU system is a better fit at that point when you're when you're past some of the need to be flexible and, and sort of learn what your options are, right? Absolutely. And then one uh, standardization platform like that, uh, it, it makes it easy for the rack layout. It makes it easy for... Uh, the system management tools and anything that you use, because uh, you know everything. If it is based on the standard uh, industry standard architecture and uh, the uh, the way we manage the systems, the way we uh, operate them, it becomes much easier for them to plan their infrastructure uh, as well, opposed to you know. Multiple. Yeah. So speaking of infrastructure, then what what's your take on on some of the momentum that's behind? Uh, either disaggregated or composable, depending on how you go at it. So rather than try to squish all this stuff together in one server, why don't we have a stored server, a GPU server, compute server, and you know, and pull those components together virtually to make my, my you know, AI server a thing. Um, DPUs, that was another big trend there. You know, Fungible was there showing off their DPUs. Liquid mm -hmm. was at the show talking uh, composability. You know, obviously that's their thing. Um, you know, Nvidia has been talking DPU for you know, it, gosh, almost a year now. You know, pretty heavy. Um, what What do you think about some of these emerging alternate architecture? You know, concepts. These are great, right? I mean, if you really think about it, uh, ultimate goal is to. Uh, utilize every piece of the given system more efficiently and uh, I know th there are ways one if you know exactly what you're uh, trying to do and if it can be provided in a given enclosure and easy to scale that is one mm -hmm. approach other one is basically hey you know what I am going to use multiple workloads and I do not necessarily know uh, ahead of time if it's going to be compute intensive if it's going to be storage intensive whether it requires a lot of accelerated uh, you know compute needed in that or not then composable infrastructure is uh, going to help uh, quite a bit on that and whether the composability uh, exists within a given enclosure and scales or whether it is going to be totally disaggregated to uh, you know manage in a different way uh, you know there are different ways to slice and dice so that's the reason i mean we work very closely with liquid right i mean uh, you know the solution that they are bringing is very valuable for a lot of verticals and uh, you know, th 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 that's a good value. 
and at the same time uh, depending again on the customers what they're trying to solve uh, you know if, if the solution can be rightly uh, fit into theirs then there's no need for that right so both of them is going to coexist but definitely as the deployments uh, start getting bigger and more heterogeneous workloads are going to be you know supported uh, you know in these platforms having an ability to you know provision the resources uh, is much uh, easier whether it is uh, i mean m- much more important whether it is going to happen in a system or within a rack or a data center um, and you know we know that you know this actually exists like you know we have storage that is already external and we have uh, you know compute uh, portion and gpu uh, you know either connected externally or you know have everything in the same system um, there are going to be some uh, you know caveats right you're talking about the overhead associated with it and the licensing cost associated with it uh, like with anything else uh, we need to see what problem we are trying to solve and pick the right solution for that and we will uh, continue to work with our partners to bring that uh, value to the customers. Uh, was there anyone on the show floor that you're not a partner with? <laughs> you got, <laughs> you know, every time I say, uh, every time I say something, you, oh yeah, they're a great partner. We're doing all sorts of fun stuff with everybody. I mean, you know, because because it's needed, right? I mean, we we kind of uh, uh, built our entire product line based building block uh, approach and uh, our customers can take advantage of it with our partners especially uh, whether it's going to be an OEM partner or whether it's a software only partner uh, as i was mentioning on on day 1 or day 0 on sunday when i when we got all these products at the show floor and i saw like oh this product is going to panasas this is going to weka this is going to playoffs this is going to boston whatever i mean i started seeing like hey you know, no, do we have enough products to showcase in our own booth with all these things going <laughs> elsewhere? But the reality of the matter is, um, and these partners uh, together, as we work with them, we are able to bring the right uh, solutions to the customers. Without that, uh, hardware is hardware, right? Uh, what can we do with it? So um, I think uh, the hardware point of view, what we are able to do, how we are able to make it easy to be deployed, easy to be managed, easy to be provisioned, and uh, again, bring the highest performance and you know, different form factors for the customers to uh, choose from. And to your point, uh, you know, different liquid cooling or forced air cooling being supported in that. Um, and as the next generation, you mentioned about uh, Samsung showcasing, uh, uh, you know, CXL in their yeah. booth. But if you have seen in the same booth, there is a super micro system right underneath that is, is a client that being used. <laughs> so. Uh, CXL is going to be absolutely important, and the first generation is going to have its own limitations. But uh, as we start looking at, uh, uh, you know, the next generation CXL, where we are talking about, uh, you know, uh, cache coherency and other factors being built in, now we, you know, you, you talked about composability that is going to take it to the next level. So we can have memory outside, you can have other accelerators. I mean, future mm-hmm. is so bright, and supercomputing in that aspect is the one that makes us so excited because we can go and see all these technologies talk to these customers partners and you know all the scientists i mean you know it's it's always good to be in the company of smart people well yeah i mean if you want to feel dumb supercomputes a great place to be because these guys, <laughs> these guys and i don't mind and, being one yeah. oh my gosh they're solving the world's problems and you know 
I'm just uh, some dude from Cincinnati uh, taking pictures. Um, we, we did talk about CXL a little bit, but at the same time that Supercompute was going on, Samsung held a, uh, a tech day, and I'm sure there was a Supermicro session at that too, right? Um, but um, they showed off a number of things. We talked a little bit about SATA SAS. I mean, they're still on the, the SAS SSD bandwagon, the 24 gig SAS. I mean, it looks like it might be interesting. But one of the things that was pretty cool uh, was the 128 terabyte E1L long ruler that, uh, you know, we'll see if that really gets into production, but uh, that was pretty slick. You had a ruler server on the uh, the show floor at SC. What's, uh, what's your sense of what's going on there? So, um, you know that we were the first to bring this ruler uh, platform and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we worked very closely with Intel at that time to uh, bring that platform because the idea was to get a petabyte of storage in a one U. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, with 32 terabyte drives, with 32 of them, we were able to, uh, you know, get to that terabyte. And um, two things. Number one was, uh, okay, you have this much storage in a very small form factor. Uh, then what is the blast radius? How do you manage this? That was one of the concerns that people had. And second thing is with a single supplier, if they were to have this, um, then their customers are at a risk of being you know, stuck with single vendor. I'm talking about Intel being the only one. But Intel was amazing in terms of uh, driving the standards and the E1L and E1S are the both standards. Uh, they worked with the industry leaders to define that. Um, what we have seen is multiple multiple uh, drive vendors, I mean, talking about, uh, you know, uh, three or four of them, uh, they are able to bring the E1S, which is a lot of interest is coming from the customers to use that because this brings, uh, this eliminates some of the design challenges. If you take away the traditional backplane where these UDA2 drives are connected, there's always these airflow uh, restrictions versus if you were to just find a way to connect it and streamline the airflow, you can get a lot more density and, uh, given that both Intel and AMD is bringing a lot of PCIe lanes into the platforms, yeah. uh, we are able to get the performance also as a part of it. Now, going back to E1L, what I have seen here is that people are figuring out ways to use high-capacity storage within the systems. And earlier what happened is if you were to use the two two generations ago or one generation ago, it was PCIe Gen 3 drive. And PCIe Gen 3 drive, it's a by four connectivity, you have limited uh, you know data that you can pull out from that. But now we are talking about PCIe Gen 5 and 4, and depending on the platform, you can even go to by 8 and all that. So you can get a lot more uh, throughput from a given device. So uh, what will happen is whether it's a capacity play or whether it's a performance play or whether it's a, a scale out in a hyperscale level deployment, these kind of things are going to be adopted. So obviously, not everyone is going to take like a 128 terabyte type of a drive. It's, number one, it's going to be too expensive. And right. two, uh, you know, they don't have necessarily the uh, need to do that. And the amount of time it takes to rebuild, uh, you, know, if, uh, a, 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 you know, in case of a drive failure, uh, that is a lot, right? But uh, a balanced platform is what would be, uh, you know, people would be preferring. And even SV is definitely going to take uh, that spot. And even L, uh, when people are using it, 
you know, in, in a high capacity or high performance storage need, where they are depending a lot on the software level uh, redundancy. I mean, you know, erasure coding and few other things that, you know, uh, sit on top of it, where a single or multiple drive failure is not going to uh, hit them too much. So yeah. it's definitely exciting to see the 128 terabytes. I would like to see it in person, you know, uh, to see how the drive looks and feels. I, th and I think there's one, I think one, I think, <laughs> I think it exists in quantity <laughs> one right now. Yeah, you know, it's, it's compelling. We've got, um, We've got some uh, long and, and short rulers in from Hynix right now and uh, uh, looking at, at those and what you can do with them and the flexibility. The, uh, the hyperscalers, I think, for short, for sure, have done well to, to, to push that 15 mil standardization. And even though 15 mil was part of the spec the whole time, there were five or six different height specs or Z height for those those e1s drives which made it hard for guys like you to say okay well, well what do we do do you want us to make a system for five different types of potential uh e1s you know drives to go in here times intel times amd you know whatever and you end up with right. with another 90 servers which is how you guys uh, you know end up with a lot of your stuff anyway but right but i think i think we kind of solved that problem because uh what we ended up doing was in a traditional one new platform uh, I, I think you may have seen it we we displayed uh, a hyper uh, platform um, you know on the show floor where in a traditional sense we have like 12 uh, u.2 drives and six of them on CPU one six of them on CPU two yep. very balanced uh, architecture but we have actually designed the backplane in a way where we made it modular so instead of because we have enough PCIe lens we are able to bring the PCIe connectivity there and one of the modules you can take it out uh, which typically hosts like four U.2 drives and replace with another bay, which has eight of the, you know, uh, even S drives. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we, you know, we have to, we have to play with what we have. I mean, we can't wait for the entire industry standards to, you know, let's say finalize and, you know, it will never converge. But I think given the fact that there is going to be a significant demand for customers for both the uh, U.2 and even S, uh, we are trying to figure out uh, ways to accommodate both of them in our systems. Well, I mean, modularity is one way to get there pretty easily because it's a heck of a lot easier to design a little cage to hold the mm -hmm. uh, with a little PCB on it or or whatever to connect into your existing servers, and then you know you don't have to do you know that's it's not a real heavy lift. You know, we didn't talk about it, and I haven't seen a lot of um, support behind it, although there's some. Uh, E3, I mean, what do you, are you looking at, I mean, obviously you guys are looking at it, but do you see much momentum there or anything interesting? Um, there, there is some interest and uh, two things, well, few things we look at it, right? Like one is uh, we look at the processor architecture and what kind of uh, PCIe connectivity that they are able to provide. And we are looking at a platform design point of view, uh, you know, how we, uh, accommodate certain type of drives and the interconnect and uh, uh, how do we make sure that it has some level of backward compatibility so that is uh, you know one part of it and the other aspect of it is we work with all the drive vendors to see what they are having it in their uh, pipeline and whether it's going to be uh, you know six months out or nine months out or 12 months out in their roadmap and we take that and we talk to our customers to see, you know, you know, what exactly the problem that we are trying to solve and is it actually a problem for, you know, the customers? I mean, 
uh, or is it just that we are creating a problem and solving it? So these are the uh, approaches that we are taking in, uh, you know, looking at the things. So of course, uh, you know, E3 is something that we are, uh, you know, looking and talking customers, and you know, in some shape and form, uh, the platforms will come out with support for it um, when it's needed. Yeah, I mean, where's the gravity, right? You can't just follow every new standard until there's some, you know, sort of uh, density there in customer demand to, you know, to go do it. Things like the OCP mezzanine card, I mean, that was generation three, really, before a lot of, you know, server vendors took notice and started including that. And now almost every server we see has at least one of those little guys in the back. Yeah. So it, yeah. Does, it can take some time, sure. I mean, you know, you've been, you know, uh, watching Supermicro for some time, and I've been in Supermicro for 13 years. And I think the first one that we have done is something called the UIO or a universal IO, mm -hmm. where we literally cut out a part of the motherboard where you can put this uh, card. That way, one do not have to invest in, like, again, 20 different platforms. We can, we can have, you know, everything connected. Then, um, you know, from, from UIO, we changed it to WIO with a similar uh, support. But then uh, it's a logical transition for us to adopt industry standards. That's why the OCP 3.0 mezzanine card support came into you know, our platforms. And as you can see, uh, even that standard is, you know, is continuing to evolve as uh, the next generation NDR connectivity uh, that we need to bring in. All of a sudden, the you know, standard half height uh, kind of a card is not going to be sufficient because the connector itself is big enough. So now uh, we are talking about, you know, um, evolving standards and we are trying to figure out how to accommodate in our platforms. Yeah, I don't envy the position because, you know, just in this conversation of about an hour, we've talked about, I don't know, eight to 12 new technologies that that are coming down the road that uh, the guy, the, the, the students, the educators, the researchers that are all at, at these uh, HPC conferences are excited about. Uh, but these workloads are becoming more mainstream in the enterprise. I mean, if you're a, a big organization and you're you don't have, you know, an AI ML initiative, I just don't know how you survive anymore. I mean, we here in Cincinnati are surrounded by you know Kroger and Macy's and GE Aviation. I mean, those guys have to. They're embracing it because they have no choice. And these things, these problems aren't going to get easier over time because smart people are going to ask more complicated questions. And once mm -hmm. we understand what the data can give us, then we're going to ask more and more and more. And the technology's got to be there. And so, again, I mean, we've talked about it a couple times, but all of these things like weather modeling and these really intensive applications that are going on at uh, human genome, at, at supercompute, this stuff will eventually become you know, part of an organization that may not be modeling weather, but, you know, wants to model a, a loss prevention or shelf restocking or self-checkout or, you know, whatever else is sort of trendy in, in their market segments. And, and that is happening. And if you're not doing it, then you're almost certainly being left behind. I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't have said it any better because, uh, you know, you mentioned few names, even in Cincinnati, and the people talking about, uh, the inferencing at the edge in the retail segment. I mean, you know, as we have self-checkout and how do we minimize the fraud detection in that, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. a very simple thing. And how do you develop those training models that actually happens in a data center? If you're talking about medical research, depending again on what kind of things that you're doing. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the HPC at the edge 
and our you know uh, AI and ML happening at the edge is a lot more. Uh, and I think you know we are just barely scratching the surface. I mean, there's a lot more to be done on that front. Oh, absolutely. And within a data absolutely. center, yeah, yeah. Well, and anyways, yeah. I think it can go on and on. It's just, uh, no, just too I, much. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't even really want to start to go down that road because there is there is so much. But what we what we had talked about with the advent of five G, like that was that was one of the linchpins for AI at the edge mm -hmm. to really become a, a thing, right? So, you know, when you guys Supermicro think about five G, it's it's more encompassing, right? Because I know you guys have systems that are going in the towers and helping the carriers actually manage networks. But now that those networks are up and available, that lets you do a lot more at the far edge of putting a device in smart cities, for instance, that can now have high-speed connectivity without a cable or a lot of uh, complexity and do traffic analysis and, and security analysis and police support and all sorts of other things. It's really remarkable. I don't want to get into it because we're going to spend another hour on that topic uh, on on this pod. But uh, yeah, this is awesome. I was glad to see you last week. Um, Supermicro stepped up in a big, big way. I think that of all the people I talked to at the event, attendees, exhibitors, that that there was you know there was there was a lot of swagger there uh, with what you guys were doing, and and it was awesome to see and awesome to be in person and. And uh, I'm off to reinvent next week, so I'm thrilled to keep going and, and seeing what else is going on out in the world. But uh, you know, I'm glad you guys did that, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Thanks for doing the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, finally get to see you without the face mask on. Now that we are back <laughs> in our offices. <laughs> Very good. All right. Uh, thanks. Thanks.